0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Atlantic Council. And uh, thank you for coming inside on such a beautiful spring day. But I I don't think you're going to be disappointed. Um, I'm Barbara Slavin. I direct the Future of Iran Initiative here. And I'm really delighted that we've been able to organize this uh, panel. This is a sector of the Iranian economy that gets some attention, but not enough attention, in in my view. Uh, It's growing rapidly. despite and in some cases because of economic sanctions that cut Iran's economy off, as you know, for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a a country that has enormous potential uh, because of its educated workforce and the fact that so many people are specializing in the area of engineering and computer science. And we're going to uh, talk a, a great deal about Iran's human capital. Uh, during this this meeting. Um, we are very very lucky we have three genuine experts on this issue and on the Iranian economy. Um, first, uh, all the way from Silicon Valley, we have Lily Serafin. Uh, Lily is co-founder and CEO of Home Care Assistance, which is the fastest growing company in the hundred billion dollar uh, in-home care industry with more than 6,000 employees across 150 global markets. And Lily is also an investor and advisor to startups, a mentor for 500 startups and StartX, and an organizing member of iBridges and TEDxKish, which I'll have her uh, talk about a little bit. Um, she serves on the board, uh, the boards of the Stanford Alumni Association, the National Iranian American Council, and the Berkeley Haas Center for Entrepreneurship and uh, Development in the Middle East. Lily is one of Silicon Valley's 40 under 40, and she's been featured in numerous publications. Uh, She has many degrees, uh, all from Stanford. She is a lucky lady, and we are lucky to have her. Um, Next, we have Chris Schroeder, who is also an entrepreneur, advisor, and investor in interactive technologies and social communications. He's a former CEO and publisher of Washington Post Newsweek Interactive and co-founder of the startup HealthCentral.com. He's an, an investor in Vox Media and a number of other companies that I have never heard of, but perhaps you have: Skift, Quib, Ibota, Signal Labs, Bright Sky Labs, Beacon, and Segovia, among others. Um, he is uh, on the investment committee of the WAMDA Fund, which is one of the largest venture capital funds in the Middle East. And uh, for those of us here at the Atlantic Council, we've been very grateful that he has co-led the economic recovery and revitalization working group of our Middle East Strategy Task Force. He's also the author of the bestseller Startup Rising, the Entrepreneurial Revolution Remaking the Middle East. And finally, we have Nadre Shamlu, who is an international development advisor and former senior advisor at the World Bank, where she spent more than three decades in technical, coordination, managerial, and advisory positions. Um, Nadre has worked on Latin America, East Asia, and the Pacific, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East and North Africa. And she's authored seminal reports on issues related to economic competitiveness, competitiveness, talent pool, and diversity. She serves on several nonprofit boards, was a recipient in 2015 of the International Alliance for Women's Making a Difference Global Award. And she's also a member of our advisory board here for our Future of Iran initiative at the Atlantic Council. So we're going to start with Lily. And uh, actually, I think I will start with a bit of an autobiographical question, because you you are very young. uh, but you started early in terms of your interest in Iran and the Internet. So perhaps tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this field.
1: Sure, I'm happy to, and it's a real pleasure to be here. So I was born in Iran and grew up primarily in California. And when I got to Stanford, um, the university has a big focus on multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary studies. I was always interested in what happens at the nexus of technology (coughs) and society. So I pursued my honors research on the role of the internet in Iran. And at the time, um, we're talking the year 99-2000, there wasn't much to speak of, but we were seeing some trends that were very exciting. Again, we were looking at you know, how people could interact, not only download information but also upload information. At the time, blogs were the major development going on where people were constructing their own narratives online. So I think ever since I was an undergraduate student, I was fascinated by what role the internet could play in different types of systems of governance. And I've followed that passion throughout the years even while becoming an entrepreneur myself, looking to how that entrepreneurial ecosystem could develop in a country that I've always been very connected to, Iran. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Tell us uh, how developed Iran is now in terms of the internet and and also cell phone penetration, how you would compare
1: uh, the state of their uh, culture with ours now in the US. Comparing the the state of the interve- Internet and innovation economy in Iran with that of the US and specifically of Silicon Valley where I spend a lot of time, I see the same types of, you know, high penetration, a, you know, almost dependence on now on smartphones for communication across channels and that's really exciting. Um, there are also some key differences that I'm noticing in The startup scene in Iran versus that of Silicon Valley and part of it just has to do with infrastructural development it takes time for that ecosystem to flourish one thing that you mentioned around technical talent in Iran what's interesting is that it's both an opportunity and a challenge when I connect with entrepreneurs in Iran I'm looking at startup teams very well-developed ideas, very cool things about how to address social problems, but the CEO, CFO, COO, CTO all have technical degrees. So how to imbue that ethos with business development and marketing and sales and some of the skill sets associated with the humanities, um, that's going to be a key challenge and opportunity that we'll see in the innovation economy there. Hmm. Similarly, the Um, exits have both an opportunity and a challenge associated with it. When you're trying to build a sustainable business model without the sort of requisite knowledge of who a strategic or financial buyer will be, it's both an opportunity to create something that's profitable in and of itself, but it's also a challenge because you don't actually know who your target audience or shareholder is gonna be for the future. So seeing how the lifting of sanctions over time will change that equation and who might come in and offer some exit or integration opportunities for these startups, that's something that's a little bit different from the economy in Silicon Valley. And maybe the last thing I'll mention on that is, what I love about the ecosystem in Iran is that product market fit is happening in reverse. So here, you might develop a product and then just see, does it work? Let's do some experimentation. Let's create a social app and see if people engage with it. There. The young entrepreneurs are facing real issues, whether it's pollution and climate change, or things that have to do with the socio-political landscape, and they're developing products and services to address those issues. So we're seeing true product-market fit happening, and not just a testing environment. So those can you give are some... me an
0: example of one of those, particularly uh, dealing with the environment, which I know is a huge issue in Iran?
1: Sure. So. Um, I was one of the the organizers at TEDxKish, and we had some, and that was the first global TED conference to happen in Iran. That was and on Kish Island. Kish Island, for those of you who don't know, it's a free is- trade zone um, off the, the coast of the country. Hello, it Yeah, it's not a cheese pie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's true. It's K I S H, as opposed to the, the word that begins with Q. And so we had some um, startup workshops where entrepreneurs were bringing their ideas and really fascinating things around um, ride sharing and carpooling that mm-hmm. could address not only traffic issues, but also pollution. And it wasn't you know, a matter of what is the transaction value of this company going to be? It's how do I play a role in the progress of my country? And that's a very hopeful sign for me. Mm-hmm.
0: Last question for you before I turn to, to Chris. Is there Uber or the equivalent in Iran? There
1: is. Um, do you remember the name of it? I don't remember. It's not Uber. It's, it's not Uber. Computer. Uber can't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not Uber, but there is a similar um, ride sharing platform, and you can look on your phone, see where all the cars are. Still happening through cash transactions, but frankly, Uber in a lot of emerging economies is taking you know cash. is taking cash as well, like they're their growing India market.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Chris, you've had some experience in Iran, so I wanted to get your uh, your reflections on the state of play there, uh, and what Western companies can and can't bring to the to uh, to assist uh, Iranian companies. So first, I just wanted to thank you very much for
2: if I'm on. I have to turn like this. I, can't, yeah. I can talk about you, Barbara, but I have to look over here Yeah, no, no. because of my mic. Um, I, I thank you very much for thinking of me, and I've so admired sure. all the work and the thought leadership that you've brought to Iran and international affairs here overall. And I'm in awe of being sitting between these two remarkable women who, who not only know much but are making such impact overall. What I'd love to do as a way to get to that is if I could fly the plane up a little bit higher sure. and just give a kind of quick global lens to this, and then I'll come back to my uh, limited but fascinating experience and two visits to Iran last year. Um, and, and I think the global context is, is important because sometimes people think uh, this is about something that's happening in Iran And in fact what is happening in Iran is happening everywhere. I think in a profound way And I, I've just in the last four months. I've been to the Middle East repeatedly. I've been to Southeast Asia I've been to Africa Kenya in particular and Latin America and in, most interestingly my trip to Latin America to keep in the back of your mind was in Colombia and it was actually in Medellin where thousands of young people were gathered to do the kinds of things that she was talking about. And if any of you are Netflix fans or whatever, and if you haven't watched Narcos, you should watch Narcos. But the whole <laughs> idea that that was 20 years ago, let alone Colombia was 10 years ago, not much different. And we're now talking about it as the fastest, or second fastest growing economy in Latin America. And, and a flower of the region should tell us a lot about how quickly things can change and what the ramifications can be on societies that we wanna write off in the current narrative of what's going on. I think there are two phenomena I'd ask you to sort of keep in mind as you think about what's happening in Iran, on, the, on particularly on the technology side, because it is also global. And the first I call the rise of the bottom up. I, I can't tell you what Iran will look like in two years, what Syria will look like in a month, let alone what a softening China will mean in, in five years. But I can tell you, with 100% certainty, as she confirmed with the numbers there, that two-thirds of humanity by the end of this decade will be walking around with a smart device in their pocket. And too often, particularly in Washington, but it's not just in Washington, we tend to write that off as a sideshow. It's a cute thing. You can watch better video or use more apps. And, and you have to remember, this, you know, this, this is a supercomputer, right? This is more computing capacity in this one device than all of NASA had in 1969 uh, to put a man on the moon. And so that, that is unleashing this thing that's just a huge phenomenon. People dismiss it not only as it can't solve enough problems, but it's really only solving problems of the elite. And again, the, the analogy that she talked about is that these are broad-based, total bottom-up, collective problems being solved. The, the, the largest mobile payment country on Earth, not in aggregate dollars, but, but not in uh, per capita dollars, but aggregate dollars is Kenya. And that's because technology is unleashed for two-thirds of humanity there are using the texting devices in order to transact business, uh, 40% of the entire GDP there passes through M-Pesa. So this is not just something of the elite, uh, and it is not some kind of cute sideshow, right? I mean, the way electricity was not a sideshow, it became phenomenal with multiplier effects that every company that she mentioned in Iran, if they become successful, will kick off a bunch of wealthy people who invest in new companies and will kick off hundreds of other entrepreneurs who will build new companies, and you get this flywheel here that I think is very, very important. Thirdly, on that part of it, I think people underestimate the speed of technology that 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 is really about to change things so dramatically overall. So it's one thing to talk about mobile devices in everyone's hands, but we in Washington barely talk about artificial intelligence or um, uh, self-driving cars or genomics, these other things, which will be unbelievably on top of us in the next five years, which means that there are leapfrog opportunities, opportunities for these emerging markets to take hold of these mm-hmm. and to have these multiplier effects that can move much faster than the analogy I did with um, uh, Columbia. The second thing that I would just sort of say is an overarching thing, is while there's this rise of the bottom up, um, there is the rise of only a few from the top down. And the ty- we, the Silicon Valley types, we like to think the government doesn't matter and policy doesn't matter. This stuff will be a wave and it will happen and, and it's gonna be true also. But that doesn't mean that governments can't make choices that will not have enormous ramifications of the speed of that adoption. And so I look at places right now around the world like the UAE, I think is very interesting. Uh, Saudi Arabia, we tend to rule out, but I would read if you haven't read these interviews with Mohammed bin Salman in The Economist and in Bloomberg about the new economic report that's about to come out Over overall. I just sat down with a new team of ministers in Argentina who are looking at the Argentina of the next three years much different than the Argentina of the last three years. By the way, ministers tend to be now in their 30s or younger. Ministers tend to be women. And so I think that we're <laughs> gonna see some very interesting marriage here, which is very, very powerful overall. Just quickly to tie all that uh, to Iran, because again, the, the ramification. I have no crystal balls. If, if these young people are coming, whether or not the governments open up for them is an unbelievably important thing, because if they don't, it's gonna be very hard to catch up and if they don't, kids will move, and then that will be real opportunities for some people, but bad for people, but we, none of us in the room can control it. To give you a couple of numbers to the great update on Iran that um, uh, Lily shared overall, uh, estimates are there's somewhere between 65 and 70% internet penetration in Iran, which is not that far off from the numbers that we have overall, 120% mobile penetration, which means people have more than one device or more than one SIM card. As she pointed out, 50% smartphones, which means these supercomputers in people's pockets I talked about before. I love the numbers thrown at me. I can't confirm them that there were six and a half million iPhones in Iran, mm-hmm. which of course were completely illegal, which meant people went to Dubai, got, either they got them illegal or either they went to Dubai and Istanbul to they Gam. They're willing, very happy to spend for a thousand dollars for for an iPhone, by the way, uh, I think in that very powerful overall. as an aside, my first trip to Iran a year ago, uh, there was very little access to three g or four g, um, you know the less than a million maybe subscribers in a Country country of over 70, 80 million, as you know. And um, people were telling me that it's coming, and the oligarchs told me, no chance, there's no way it's gonna come because the government's afraid of the controls and that type of a thing. A year later, I came back, and there are 20 million subscribers to 3G and 4G. So again, this stuff happens, I think, in very powerful. Well, I love, Barbara, your use of the word, and I know we'll talk more about it, of human capital, because I have to tell you, in all my work, this was one of the greatest uh, collections of engineering and engineers that I've met among young people in universities, half of whom, by the way, are women. Uh, the new generation of talent writ large is as good as anything I've seen around the world. The ability for that to connect to the expat community with leaders like Lilly is almost unprecedented, maybe since India, in terms of the U.S. bridging to their Israel, maybe is another example, but there are not many that are like it. And um, look, the geography, the geography there is just a blessing in so many ways. I'm helpful after the February elections because I think more will be unleashed rather than less, and once it's unleashed, it's very hard to put back. So we'll have to see what happens overall. But I came away thinking this will not be easy or short. I was supposed to go back in November and my visa was killed. I have friends in prison. I mean, we all know the hard stuff of it as well, but the stuff that I've outlined is not only happening at a clip and a possibility in Iran, which I think will be unprecedented, it's absolutely in line with with our global trends, which simply will not go back.
0: Thank you, um, um if you can fill in some of the gaps that have been left uh, about the general entrepreneurial climate in Iran right now. Uh, also the question of residual American sanctions. Um, just last week we uh, hosted the governor of the Iranian Central Bank here for a private meeting and he spoke privately and then uh, also in an interview with me and later at the Council on Foreign Relations about problems iranians are having still doing international banking because of lack of access to the dollar so it's uh, paint the picture with both the, the light and the dark
3: well first of all thank you very much for inviting me to yet another very interesting i mean i'm here very often f- to listen to uh, these wonderful sessions that you that you and the atlantic council put on and uh, it, i'm it's de- i'm delighted and honored to be here among my really very uh, distinguished fellow panelists, so thank you. Uh, let me just maybe ex- uh, explain a little bit, uh, also uh, take a little bit of a time to uh, give a bit of a, a perhaps historical perspective to where Iran stands right now with respect to the IT sector and what we can expect in the future. I'd like to take a little bit of a credit for for that, because in uh, 2001. Uh, when I joined the, the Middle East uh, Department of the World Bank, I was assigned to, do, to organize um, a, a series of, of conferences, uh, which we held in Marseille in, in, in France, uh, on knowledge economy. And at that time, Iran was not included in the in the list of the of the uh, mm-hmm. con- countries that were going to participate. So I got on the phone and I talked to the counterpart, the Iranian counterpart. At the, I mean, the counterpart, mm-hmm. our counterpart at the Ministry of uh, Economy and says, "Please, please, please, you must, you must find some really good people to come to this co- to this conference." Anyway, three first-rate people came to the conference. This was in 2000 and. Uh, um, Two, three, and they were really inspired very much by this entire topic of knowledge economy. And so they went back, and uh, two of them were from the uh, from the you know what used to be the ministry, the planning and budgeting organization, which was later on abolished by uh, Ahmadinejad, and uh, they were in the process of, of defining the next five year plan. So this knowledge economy became really hmm. central to the, to the next plan to the, uh, that uh, President Khatami was putting forward. And uh, great work was done in terms of uh, analyzing what Iran needed to do, how the different sectors needed to fit into each other, what telecom, what you know, non-telecom, one, uh, everything was done very well. Well, come uh, Mr. Ahmadinejad, he put this plan to, uh, uh, on, on a shelf. And just uh, recently, the last couple of years, where the where the next five-year plan, the 2016 to 2021 plan, is being organised, um, this old plan is being dusted off and updated, and it's now really part of the uh, part of the next uh, five-year uh, plan. And a lot of the um, I would say the policy components and the policy building blocks of this uh, of the next plan. Are being built around making Iran a very, very first of all diversified economy, but also very knowledge-intensive, knowledge-generating economy. So um, I, I, I'm very, very uh, hopeful about the fact that uh, these things will be taken into these uh, policies will be taken into account. Uh, I was in in February in in Iran just for a conference, which I can explain a little bit uh, about later on, and uh, we were just. T- uh, some people in the telecom sector told us about some of the plans that are now on the on the books uh, for the next phase of reforms. And um, if these plans, I cannot disclose them now because they haven't made the plans public, so I think I, I maybe wish we, we, we can come back at some further I mean at a future time to to elaborate more on these plans. But the sector will be radically restructured, both in terms of players in terms of number of players, in terms of the public-private uh, mix of the sector, in terms of the upscale, um, you know, technologies. So I think looking forward in the next uh, four to five years, Iran will have a radically different infrastructure, um, you know, uh, in place that would um, provide it with a good... Um, I would say launching pad for for uh, these knowledge uh, economies. Now, of course, the sanctions have been um, a uh, you know how should I say a, a kind of a impediment in every sector. And uh, but every uh, the Iranians are very um, resourceful and they have uh, kind of you know perhaps utilized these. Uh, um, sanctions as a way of natural protection in most of the other countries, you know, for infant industries you have to put in protection, but in Iran, you know, these protections were fortunately sort of like, well, not fortunately, I shouldn't say that, but were sort of like imposed by outside, so the, it gave a little bit of a chance for internal uh, companies to to start. Uh, as uh, Lily was mentioning, there's a, a range of um, companies that have started Replicating what was successful outside, you know, um, um, for instance, uh, I mean, uh, um, the the equivalent of YouTube, the equivalent of Groupon, the equivalent of Amazon. These these have really sprung up and and really shown a lot of uh, great opportunity. Um, and uh, you know, I think I I heard that. Uh, Foreign investors were just waiting to really jump into into the Iranian market and perhaps you know uh, acquiring these companies, but there are also a lot of homegrown, um, homegrown um, great ideas that are coming up. Uh, Lily mentioned the the issue of uh, of the traffic issue. I was at a conference at the startup conference about 18 months ago for women entrepreneurs. And there were so many different ideas that had come up. This was sort of like a competition, and the first prize, and so on. Uh, I, I just, if, if I can take maybe a minute to sure, explain, please. for instance, this one um, very fascinating. Several, I mean, there were a lot of uh, fascinating ideas, but this one kind of stu- stuck in my mind. You know, in Iran, we don't have these big pharmaceutical chains like you know CVS or others. We have a lot of mom and pop uh, uh, pharmacies. And so this lady, um, and you know, and women can in a way also uh, detect the problems in the society and try to find solutions for it. She said, you know, I, I, I want to start a company where, when you're at a doctor, the doctor can type in through the uh, through your phone the kind of medication that you need and the. Uh, through a network of pharmacies we can find exactly where the where the pharmacy is and so we you know you you can go directly and find the the, the medication instead of going from one pharmacy to the next pharmacy to the next pharmacy to try to find the or even calling you know mm-hmm. i mean uh, so in a way it cuts down on the traffic congestion because you know exactly you know from point a to b to to go and and also uh, and also you you cut down on time and uh, and uh, and uh, you know better market uh, um, you know consumer to market uh, connection i saw her about uh, a month ago and i said so how are you doing she said you know she has almost like a 300% growth every quarter this wow. is an amazing an amazing uh, uh, growth and she says i have now the problem that there are very few Role models in Iran that I could go to. And I'm sure that Lily was just mentioning that she gets so many requests, look, you know, please help us. I mean, so many role mo- uh, these, there are not, not enough role models, not enough. Business acumen, marketing, or finance to really m- make or grow. But it's a great idea. It could be replicated in, you know, in Mashhad. It could be replicated anywhere else, actually, in the world. If you come to think about it. But these are sort of some of the ingrown. Uh, I mean, some of the homegrown type of uh, mm-hmm. uh, innovation. Now, of course, um, the the remaining restrictions under the um, under the um, sanctions they are still they will continue to be very very restricting the both the access that the external um, market has to the iranian market as well as the possibility of the Iranians to connect with outside uh, outsiders. And I think it's a pity for the world. It's not just a pity. I mean, it's not just Iran that is losing out in this process. It's, I think, the world is losing out on this process. Everywhere, we are looking for growth, we are looking for a possibility for, uh, I mean, with uh, interest rates sometimes being negative interest rates, the world is looking for growth. And Iran is one of those few countries that have actually above average World growth, I mean, in the next uh, two to three years, the IMF and the World Bank estimate about maybe two to 3%, 2.3% percent, percent of global growth. Iran is 4%, 4.4%, percent, percent, and is actually planning for the next, uh, next uh, five-year plan to grow by 8%. So, I mean, it, in a way, I think that these uh, existing restrictions are constraining not only the uranium capabilities, but also the opportunities for uh, for, uh, for the world to to grab into some good uh, and uh, growing yield, uh, as as they say in, in the investment world. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you,
0: Nadir. Let me come back to you, Lily. How can particularly the uh, how can outsiders participate uh, in in this knowledge economy in Iran? And uh, I mean, obviously, Iranian Americans, uh, dual nationals, have a particular interest. But just in general.
1: So I think that, that Nadavid, um rightly pointed to some of the limitations still in place with sanctions. And I think that the P5 plus one nuclear negotiation, the bridges being formed with Iran, the diplomatic breakthroughs, sometimes um, in the midst of all that excitement, we ignore the fact that the U.S. trade embargo is very much in effect, which means that as an individual and as a U.S. citizen, even mentoring. A group of entrepreneurs in Iran is off limits without an OFAC exemption, which is almost impossible to acquire for that limited activity. So, ways that we're getting around it, you know, hosting TEDx bringing 1,200 people together on an island to share ideas as individuals, hosting iBridges, which has had two sold out conferences so far one at UC Berkeley, one in Berlin last year, another one planned for Europe later in the year. And because it's an academic slash educational conference, you know, Uh, There was permission granted to host those types of events, but one-on-one mentorship the type that can get all of the Silicon Valley Iranian American leaders engaged with those in Iran. That's still a huge challenge that we're facing I don't think that you can find a well-known tech company in the US today that doesn't have an Iranian American at its helm either as a founder a founding executive or lead investor Google Twitter Uh, Dropbox, Uber, I mean, it goes on and on. And so we really have a talented pool of diaspora community members. And fortunately, we have our counterparts in Europe who can can and are engaging a lot more because Mm -hmm. the sanctions lifted were really an opportunity for the rest of the world to engage with Iran whereas the United States is still fairly left out, save for a few Fortune 50 companies that had very specific carve-outs. So it's one of the challenges that we're facing as those of us who want to engage further beyond these global conferences, how is it that we can do that? I think Nadia mentioned that I receive requests every single week from entrepreneurs within the country for assistance, you know, not with technical development, but primarily business development, business models that will allow them to build a sustainable product and service for years to come, exit opportunities, information on how to develop more infrastructure in the venture capital community there. And so those limitations, we're feeling them very much in effect, um, just to, to emphasize that there are still constraints, even in the midst of all of the hope.
0: One thing uh, I thought I uh, was permitted under uh, Treasury regulations was sharing certain kinds of communications technology with Iran. Isn't that, isn't that the case? I mean, the idea being that this would support civil society and uh, freedom of speech and so on.
1: That's right. So uh, many of the sanctions, the individual sanctions that were lifted allow for communication technology. There are exemptions for things that will have a humanitarian impact, including aircraft. Um, I think we might get into the discussion, because I'm certainly no expert, but the banking infrastructure hasn't necessarily updated to reflect some of those exemptions, and so it's one thing to have it in effect with policy. It's another thing. To make sure that it's enforced and implemented uh, correctly, and so there are still uh, many, many hoops that people have to jump through to get okay. some of those things done.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Chris, is there a way to work through uh, European companies in order to participate? in uh, given, given the sanctions still affecting yeah. American companies, so two,
2: two observations. One, just on the on the big, on the broader kind of issue overall, because again, I think people underestimate the power of the end run, which doesn't mean you're doing business, but de facto the impact is there, which I think will have so much potential going forward. So. I did not see anyone. I was going to say a young person, but I, the first person offered to me was well into their 40s, who didn't have VPN and therefore were not on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and all the kind on a regular basis and and engaged on it. In fact, everyone had counseled me to get uh, to for, leave my iPhone, you know, probably for my own personal security reasons, but also because they thought it would never work when I was over there, so to get a local phone. My family never received anything I sent from my local phone, but I was accessing the internet almost all the time through Wi-Fi and almost every advice because I had VPN. And so, so people's ability to kind of work around that is not a way to do business, but it opens up, like not unlike these wonderful things like iBridges, it just opens up a facility and understanding and engagement, a seeing what other people are doing, discovering global best practices, which is such a flywheel in terms of the impact overall. Um, I think it's too early to tell. I mean, I'm, and I am also, like Lily, I'm no expert and I'm no attorney, and I think you can trip into I mean, she's just convinced me that I've been breaking OFAC now for two years, which, you know, I didn't know that, that you're not allowed to, <laughs> I don't mentor anybody, but I talk to people, and you never know what you trip into. So um, I, what I would say is that um, it's gonna take a lot of time to navigate that, and you would bring the same caution to bear with that that you would uh, with the U.S. The third thing that I would say, which is interesting, There is a dynamic that has arisen that some people have argued, and I don't have an opinion on it per se, that these, um, the negotiations have opened up opportunities for the rest of the world, but local players are actually using them as an excuse to welcome places like Europe, certainly India and China and others, but doing everything they can to single out America as a lesser opportunity. I I can't tell you if that's an immediate thing out of expedience today or whether that's a phenomenon. We're going to have to wrestle over the next coming years, but I come back where I began with which is when there are enough people out there accessing Facebook and Google and Twitter and other things like that, there will be a multiplier effect that we may not capture in the next year, year and a half, but will off- open up, I think, very profound opportunities over the next five years.
0: Nadra, uh, before I turn to the audience, I just wanted to ask you uh, to, to give some interesting statistics. You brought a handout uh, about oh, uh, yeah, Iran, Iranians' educational level and what they're. Studying in school, so just a few we well, mentioned. Me just
3: maybe I, can, I, if I can add maybe a few words to sure. what uh, sure. Lily and uh, and Chris were saying. Uh, I was also at, at, at both at the TEDx uh, event in uh, in in Kish and on, uh, and also at Ibridge in Berlin. And what um, uh, and in February when I went to Iran, I was invited by this company by the name of Zudel. Um, it's, it was very interesting. It was, there was a gentleman from Switzerland who lived in Switzerland, all of it, because we we're talking about the diaspora, and everything. the American-Iranian diaspora or the Iranian-American diaspora are still somewhat you know, tied to go to Iran. But the European diaspora, Iranian-European diaspora are, are fairly free. And so he had been actually at, at uh, Kish and then later on at, at uh, Ibridge, and he started this company by the name of Zoodle. He said, I want to be the next... I want to be the um, Alibaba of Iran and mm-hmm. so he, his vision is to create an export platform for Iranian companies not only overseas but to all of the silk road and you know the, mm-hmm. the, the, the around companies and this com- this uh, conference that he had organized he has by now already uh, accumulated something like 5000 companies inside Iran that have exported and have export potential um, and 700 of these companies were at this conference. I mean, this was a huge uh, e- event and, you know, huge uh, um, auditorium that was full of really great first-rate uh, um, ideas and, and companies. So, in other words, what I want to say is that the European diaspora are really, uh, you know, stepping in on, the, on that front and, you know, taking advantage of it. The Amer- Iranian-American diaspora is still a bit tight. But what I wanted to show you, actually, uh, I left some... Um, some, um, you know, um, slides outside uh, is the is really to give it some magnitude on the on the Iranian, um, you know, human capital uh, arrangement. Uh, when you look at the, uh, for instance, the percentage of the population that has a um, university or t- a tertiary education, it's at about 9.4 percent. In other words, close to 10 per- one out of every 10 Iranian is. Uh, highly educated and so on. It comes out to something like seven point five million Iranians have a, a university uh, um, education. This is as large as the country of Jordan or the country of Israel, if we want to kind of give it give it a bit of a a, a, a magnitude. So in other words, it's a very large um, talent pool there. It's larger than Turkey. It, Turkey is at around six point seven um, a thousand and in Iran it's about seven point four, so almost like uh, eight hundred thousand more uh, um, university educated um, people. Now a large share of that, uh, these university educated or even the current uh, cohort of, of university um, students are in engineering and right. uh, and uh, sciences. Iran has uh, per year there are two hundred thirty three thousand. Iranian engineers and scientists that graduate from uh, from um, uh, from university, the United States is 4, 000, only 4,000 more above that level. So the United States has 237,000 uh, you know engineers and uh, and uh, scientists graduating from universities. Iran has 233,000. So that's a huge. It's a huge number. Uh, if we exclude China and India, it's the third largest cohort of engineering and, and, uh, and uh, scientists in the world. And just wanted to mention, it's actually 70% of this c- cohort is, are women. Uh, normally, yeah. 60% of the university students are, are women. In Iran, seventy percent in the science and technology fields. Didn't Ahmadinejad try to prevent women from studying STEM? Some fields, but you know, very few. Like you know, here and there, some universities say no mining engineers or no this. But in the end, you know, the the push, the the demand <laughs> side for these fields has you know far out outpaced. And it, because it's a merit-based uh, uh, entrance system where p- people enter because of. Uh, their performance on university entrance exams. There is no way, and and those numbers by which people enter, you know, the, like you know, you have a number. It doesn't say whether you're a you know he or a she. It kind of makes it difficult for 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 universities to to to. How should I say, exclude or eliminate a lot of women from from that? But nonetheless, yes, there are there is some talk about well, we shouldn't perhaps have so many women engineers. But you know, they're coming and they're like opening the doors and you know walking in. So that's uh, that's something. Uh, in terms of uh, again, so the, these are just some some simple statistics that I wanted to share. That they come from the World Economic Forum's uh, uh, Human Development um, uh, Human uh, Capital. A report the interesting thing is that iran ranks fairly high in terms of human development uh, very low in terms of human deployment so or talent deployment so th- there's a big how should hmm. i say a big gap that will uh, that is just is waiting there to be exploited by uh, you know smart and interesting uh, ideas okay thank you thank so you. much
0: um, Now, questions, and uh, if you could wait for the microphone and give your name, and we'll start with Faye right here. Uh, Thank you, Atlantic Council. Thank you, Barbara, for putting such a great panel together. I'm Faye Mokhtator. I'm a member of Atlantic Council. Uh, My question is to you, Nader. What are the hesitations of the US uh, companies to tap into this lucrative market in Iran? Are they banking restrictions, and uh, why aren't the US uh, looking at this uh, high potential uh, and not tapping into it. Thank you. Maybe you can say something. Well,
3: the, um, there are several different uh, factors. One, the very most important factor is the restrictions that still exist on the books about uh, dollar transactions. Dollar, I mean, tra- any kind of transactions in dollars. So, if you are a U.S. organization you still have to deal with with a dollar, with some sort of a dollar engagement with the Iranian economy. And that is unfortunately not possible. So this is one of the things that need to be tackled. Um, It was, uh, these are are some of those existing sanctions from 1995 uh, on various issues, but they were, despite the fact that these sanctions were on the book, they were always waived through executive order. They haven't been waived uh, since, and I think this is one of the areas that I think we, as the, you know, that this, as this community, should push for. Um, without that very important um, removal of that very important impediment, it's going to be very difficult to uh, to engage. And then all sorts of other uh, restrictions that you know in, in the U.S. company cannot be directly involved; it has to be going through a very, very independent subsidiary. I mean independent subsidiary in a way is a kind of a a contradiction in terms when you Mm -hmm. get a subsidiary is a subsidiary but an independent subsidiary is almost like you know it's almost impossible to invent it but nonetheless so these are some of the restrictions that that are being uh, put in place there are certain if there is a lot of push a lot of uh, lobbying for it. There are certain, of course, uh, exceptions that are being made, like Boeing, like you know some of the other. Um, is, it, uh, is it
0: illegal for, uh, for, for example, Google? Does Google have a European subsidiary or a Chinese subsidiary that could legally invest in Iran? You know the
3: problem is again. You know the, the, to to ring fence the mm. operations that they, this operation doesn't use even one single dollar or is not cleared through a uh, let's say the head office uh, in uh, wherever in silicon valley uh, so there are so many um, implicit uh, restrictions that really are layers and layers and layers of uh, inconveniences of legal uh, gray areas of i mean particularly there are a lot of gray areas if i were to um, to kind of summarize it. And the problem with the gray areas is that it leaves a lot of room for interpretation and people don't want really to take on that kind of a risk when mm-hmm. they go into a country.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Lily, that. with all these Iranians and all these companies, um, are they trying to figure out a way that they could invest in Iran?
1: Sure, and I'll you know, agree with what Nadia said and say that the risk assessment Um, hasn't made it so that the first movers advantage is attractive enough for these companies to take um, really critical resources and spend them lobbying legislators in order to have the u.s trade embargo lifted though i do foresee that that will happen over the next couple of years as everyone notices that there are more than 100 billion dollars of lost trade opportunities that the u.s is not able to take advantage of that their competitors in europe are taking advantage of I'd also say that I'm hopeful around that because of what's happened with HR 158, which was the changes to the visa waiver program and the concern that Silicon Valley companies had around being able to retain their Iranian-American talent, let alone be able to attract talent from Iran. The idea being that if the EU reciprocates and Iranian-Americans wouldn't be able to travel as easily to conferences or their subsidiary companies in Europe, that could have a real effect on the performance of companies here. So that's sort of the lower hanging fruit where we're seeing a lot of really prominent investors and entrepreneurs coming out and saying, you know, having dual nationals be a provision on which we determine national security policy, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think at the point where you have an organized group of companies working to advocate on the HR 158 behalf, the next step might be moving forward with determining how they can be involved with the U.S. trade embargo.
0: Can I ask where that stands? By the way, is I believe there is legislation in Congress that would address the concerns of Iranian Americans. You just had a victory there, didn't you?
1: That's right. Senator, Flake. like, yeah, we do have legislation in Congress um, that's mm-hmm. meant to sort of strip out the dual national provision of the changes to the visa waiver program, that looks very hopeful.
0: Good, good. Yes, all the way in the back, Ali Dad. Wait for the microphone. Okay. Thanks.
4: Uh, hi, thank you very much. I'm Ali Dodd Mafinezam with the West Asia Council. Following up on the previous question related to the role of subsidiaries and so on, it's my understanding that a critical company such as Cisco is being told by the feds that through their subsidiaries they can work in Iran provided the services and technologies that they're providing are developed in Europe, not in the U.S., which is a very uh, difficult and almost impossible condition to impose, because their technologies are, of course, being called Cisco, uh, San Jose, you know, uh, uh, Silicon Valley area, and, it's, and my question is, in your judgment, what is the logic behind that? Because yeah, a President Xi Jinping of China was in Iran, of course, with that huge delegation, in uh, January of this year. And one of the main agreements was in related to information technology, especially Huawei, which is obviously Cisco's primary competitor. Uh, I'm wondering how, in your view, um, that this issue is being seen in this city and how it might be uh, maybe different going forward. Thank you.
0: Uh, who wants to grab that uh,
4: You're all oh, yours, Lily. Mayak must have a view on that, actually. Yeah. Um,
1: I don't have a specific view on on the, the Cisco example that you brought up, but I would just say, and this is a very broad answer, that the narrative and history of the United States with Iran is very different than the narrative and history with Europe and Iran, and so the comfort on both sides to engage both politically and economically is just there, and building those bridges will take more time, and hopefully we'll see more logic prevailing as a result.
2: You're going to see a lot of crazy and inconsistent things that are just going to happen. And for those of you who are old enough to remember, you know when the wall came down, there was a lot of unbelievable crazy inconsistency that happened with Eastern Europe. And time, you have to bet on where things are going. And I think the arc is going very clearly here. And it's, it's going to be a matter of time and navigating with great care the mistakes that you can make that you don't know that you're making.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: OK. Uh, yes, the gentleman here.
6: Thank you. It was a very useful and very enlightening presentation. I really learned so much. I enjoyed it. I am Dr. Nisar Chaudhary with Pakistan American League. Uh, do you think and when do you think uh, USA will be able to give access to its financial institutions, to Iran? And the Congress, uh, sometimes I wonder, Either they are out of touch with the ground realities of the rest of the world or they think USA is the entire world, or they don't know their limitations. And there was a time when USA was trying to isolate Iran, and now the entire world is working with Iran and USA is isolated. It has gone totally the reverse side, and so I my question is that, uh, Uh, Do you anticipate that uh, sooner Americans would also realize that they should give access to Iran into their financial system so that this is an opportunity for the Iran and the international community to bring Iran into the fold of international community in family of nations so that they grow together instead of isolating?
0: Thank you. If you don't mind, I might actually take a start at that that one one, um, because I've been focusing on this very, very very heavily in the last few weeks. It's not so much whether US banks will have direct relationships with Iranian banks. All the Iranians are asking for is restoration of something called the U-turn. In 1995, the US put a trade embargo on Iran and basically cut off uh, the American system from the Iranian system. But Iranians were allowed still to process transactions that involve what's called a U-turn through American banks. So transactions that were denominated in dollars So it it passes through an American bank, but the money doesn't actually stay in an American financial institution. And from 1995 to 2008, Iran had access to this U-turn. And it was very helpful in terms of their oil exports, just general international trade and investment to have access to this. Um, Governor of the Iranian Central Bank, I asked him, I said, was it your understanding that restoration of the U-turn was part of the nuclear deal? And he said, it was our expectation, which was an interesting response. So it seems to me that perhaps uh, whoever was negotiating for Iran, I don't want to criticize uh, Foreign Minister Zarif, but whoever was negotiating for Iran in in the nuclear negotiations maybe didn't nail this this particular point down. And now it looms very, very large. Mm -hmm. So it's Iran's expectation. It's going to go to a joint commission that has to adjudicate Um, disputes over the nuclear deal and Iran is raising this and we will see. Uh, The EU had a big delegation in Iran uh, over the weekend, Federica Mogherini was there and the Iranians also lobbied with the EU and the EU now will lobby Treasury Secretary Jack Lew and Adam Zubin and all these other people to restore the U-turn. Our Treasury says no, but I frankly don't know how they resolve this issue unless they do waive this restriction Mm -hmm. and allow Iran limited access to the US financial system for the purpose of these U-turn transactions. As to when American banks would actually be doing business in Iran, Iran is still a state sponsor of terrorism on the State Department list, under sanctions for missile launches, uh, support for Hezbollah and Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And that's not going away any time soon. Barbara, with
2: that, I'm curious in just your general thinking, but also mm-hmm. where you've been. How do people scenario analyze this question in a Republican administration?
0: Well, it obviously depends on who the Republican would be. If it's Donald Trump, that would be very interesting. Um, well, what
2: about the first day of office, which is going to be very first? Yeah. Nobody, nobody, nobody
0: is going to tear up the nuclear deal. Right. It, not Donald Trump. Not Ted Cruz. That's important. Uh, and, and I think everybody understands that this was an international commitment, and the United States can't just walk away uh, from it uh, without hurting itself. But in terms of how this relationship develops, whether our banks do participate at some point, uh, a lot will depend on the character of the next U.S. administration, and uh, you know, and also on the. Willingness of American companies to lobby on this issue and, and to take it on. Iran's an important market, but it's, you know, you can live without it. We've lived without it largely for 37 years and probably uh, will continue to. But, uh, you know, if the Europeans can go back and, and mm-hmm. have normal business, that will already be a big big step for Iran in terms of reintegration into the, community, the international I can maybe community. Can I add
3: a few words to so that? Um, You know, Iran is is one of the largest markets, and whenever whoever is looking at the at this uh, at this market considers it to be one of the last sort of like frontiers uh, of of, uh, I mean, from Europe to Goldman Sachs to everybody else, they consider this to be a very important market. But not only is the Iranian market important, but the surrounding countries, because there are a lot of small countries around. Uh, Now, Pakistan happens to be a very large country, but the the, the other countries around Iran are, you know, 7 million, 12 million, whatever. And Iran is tapping into these markets. So by coming to Iran, you essentially have the bigger uh, West Asia um, market. Um, Looking again at the projections of the IMF and, and the World Bank about the growth prospects of this region, this is the one big growth region in the world. Mm. Latin America is going down, you know, Africa is not growing that much. India to some extent, Europe is one point, uh, I mean I had the numbers here, will we'll grow by 1.6% uh, in, in the, China is slowing down, Russia is slowing down. The only growth region in the world is actually this region. So I think that the market pressures will have to, and you know, and the American companies as far as, I have just read here and there they realize this. and whoever comes into the White House uh, in 2016 will have to perhaps uh, deal a little bit with the pressure from the business community that you know this is a market we were I was at some uh, conference uh, some, month, some months ago. And there was a gentleman who said that not being able to go to Iran is like a huge tax that is being levied on the on the American business sector without the ability to earn the the you know the, the income against it. So I think that the, it, is, uh, it, is, uh, it is the corporate sector it's the business sector of the United States that has to really lobby for this very very strongly, and politicians bend to the pressure from the business sector and they will have to do they will have to uh, you know to do their job uh, at this point if they don't want to be left out out of that market mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
7: Jim slattery Thank you for your presentation today. I, I really enjoyed what you had to say. I'm curious as you Figure out how to approach Iran on these very important entrepreneurial matters that you've been talking about Have you thought about how to make this approach and this whole relationship a win-win for Israel? Mm -hmm. How do we engage Israel constructively? How do we figure out how to speak to Israel's deep concerns as they view Iran still as an existential threat? If, If we are smart enough to figure out how to speak to Israel's insecurities, magical things will happen. Okay. You know, AIPAC here in this country will have a different view. And there as you look at Israel today, there is growing recognition that just perhaps this nuclear agreement is a transformational deal in Israel's best interest in spite of Netanyahu's opposition. So I would suggest to you that Focus on Israel. Focus on figuring out how to speak to Israel's insecurities and magical things will happen.
0: It's well, a very interesting comment. I didn't know. Does anybody want to take that up? I think One, I, I think, mean uh, as somebody who, who talked yeah. to myself blue in the face with Israeli diplomats trying to explain to them that the nuclear deal actually would be a good thing for them. Um, sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, met with, no, 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 Iran will increase in influence, and Iran, you know, look, I don't believe Iran actually wrote death to Israel on that silly missile that, that it tested, but Israelis believe that Iran actually did that because Iranian media said that they did. I mean, these two countries touch each other's raw nerves in, in, in such an incredible way that uh, after 37 years of mutual demonizing, you know, even harder for them than, frankly, it is for the U.S., but...
3: I think that uh, you you're you're absolutely right if we don't address or if this not if we, but if this issue is not addressed, you know we are continuously in a in a cycle and you know it's it doesn't really um, you know we don't reach anywhere. but I think we need to also look at what has been what has been happening in Iran. The Iranian people have on a consistent basis tried to be to push toward moderation to you know even within this within the small I would say, degrees of freedom that they have been given. They have always pushed toward more uh, moderation, more, you know. When you go to Iran, there is no, no. Uh, I would say, appetite or even thinking about, you know, doing anything with Israel. I mean, already Iran is up to its uh, neck, and people are really objecting to the... To the engagement that Iran has with Syria, much less, you know, I don't think Iranian parents would, or Iranian mothers or fathers would ever think about, uh, about you know, doing something. But I think that these these stories need to be told more. And I think that the last election, the the elections of the, both the last two elections, I mean, Rouhani's election plus the two elections in the past plus perhaps the next election of the presidential election will really push Iran in. in in a safe space to claim that you know we are not really in, in a in a very belligerent mode vis-à-vis the rest of the, the the region, not just Israel but also Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, elsewhere. And I think the Iranian uh, we need to hear more the stories of the Iranian people rather mm-hmm. than the what, few. Little, you go. I just,
2: there's one quick thing. I'll go after you on this one. Go ahead.
1: Not being able to speak to the to the specific policy or regional issue, I would just say if there's one category of individuals that I trust to arrive at groundbreaking ideas and be absolutely inclusive regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, or any type of heritage, it's entrepreneurs. Um, I think it is the ethos of entrepreneurs to be inclusive and to tackle intractable problems with new solutions, and so I'm very hopeful that the innovation sector in Iran can play a role in developing those bridges with all neighboring nations.
7: Amen, all I'm suggesting is reach out to Israel, engage the entrepreneurial community in Israel in these entrepreneurial activities,
2: figure out how to do that. I I just, uh, to add to what she said, uh, because I couldn't agree with it more, um, the, the one almost unsolicited counsel I would just leave here with Anytime, anywhere, you see sentiment polls about these kinds of conflicts that seem unchanging for 30 years, if they don't break it out by age category, don't take those polls completely seriously, because they often don't. And I remember when the economists and others began to dig into some of these intractable things and broke them out between 35 and younger and my age and older, the numbers were diametrically opposed. And you just have to keep that in mind in thinking about this, because what she just described, one, is completely patently unarguable, and secondly, it is also a generational phenomenon.
0: Just look at Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, Bobak over there, and then we'll go to you.
8: Thank you. Bobak Yak, the Firewood Center for International Private Enterprise. Thank you very much, Diamond Council, for the panel, and thank you uh, to the panelists. Um, uh, the kind of work that we do, just to change gear a little bit and keep it in, inside uh, the country, uh, mostly focusing on civil society. Uh, uh, Particularly in the private sector of developing countries. So uh, I just want to get some impressions. Uh, You mentioned some uh, social issues that Iranians are tackling, uh, the innovation sector is tackling, keeping it more local, environment, and so on and so forth. Uh, Has there been an impact uh, by this sector on the revitalization of civil society in Iran? And do you see that having an impact four or five years down the road? Hmm. Thank you. Great question.
3: Whoever wants to. Well, I, maybe I can. Um... There, there has there have been at the I mean, particularly because of the successes of some of these startups in in Iran, and so there is this growing um, uh, I would say uh, movement of promoting entrepreneurship for youth and women in in Iran, and there have been several a large number of I would say uh, both localized initiatives, you know, um, promoting. Uh, this sort of uh, through through some of the NGOs and through civil society at the local level, uh, I, I can tell you of, of for instance, examples of uh, uh, you know these sorts of uh, initiatives in Khorramshahr, in Abadan, in you know, area, in uh, in Balucha. So in in the very um, marginalized areas of Iran, so there, there has been the civil society has actually stepped in because they see that this is a space job creation, economic opportunity is an area where you know, you're not touching on very, very um, tough political issues. So the, the civil society has actually stepped in and, and they are, they have, there are some pretty good results that they can show and uh, they, uh, even the communities themselves, let's say uh, entrepreneurs within the communities, these communities are stepping in to help the civil societies to, to broaden that uh, that reach.
0: Mm-hmm. Lili, do you want to add anything on that civil society? Or?
1: I would just add that as uh, individuals are determining the pathways to developing really effective organizations, that should have a further impact on civil society, because that's, um, that's knowledge that could be leveraged in terms of any type of organization. And we frankly see that here in the US. Successful entrepreneurs, once they reach a certain echelon of success, are now devoting more of their time and energy to the social issues that they're trying to impact.
0: Gentleman right here. Shari Afshar. Can can you wait for the microphone, please? Yeah. Thank you.
5: Shari Afshar with the optimistic Iranian Trade Association. We very much believe in the innovation economy and the four T's of the Iranian innovation economy, trade, talent, tourism, and technology. We think those are four pillars that are very much interconnected. Tourism, and I mean, they just kind of feed each other. Um, What I, uh, first of all, I would like to talk to that uh, person you mentioned, the Iranian Alibaba. I get a lot of entrepreneurs that contact me and they want to know, what can I do? What can I do? You know, so uh, it's a conversation we want to cultivate, but we can't mentor. There's there's different shades, 50 shades of gray. Um, We have limits. But I would like to know what the panel thinks of the OFAC um, exemption to social media communication—that very, very narrow uh, exemption—and what we can still do to cultivate that or expand on that exemption.
9: Hmm.
0: Well, all my friends are on Twitter there, and so I mean that's how I communicate with all the Iranian journalists I know. Um, (laughs) What more can we do? That's the answer
2: to the question. You just gave the answer.
0: Uh, I mean. it's so vibrant, and uh, this is only in you know in the in in the last couple of years, but uh, so much of the American media now gets its news about yes. Iran via Twitter. Yeah. Um, I followed uh, Federica Mogherini's trip, the EU delegation's trip to uh, Iran over the weekend via Twitter. There were all these pictures of her wearing, I must say, a lovely powder blue hijab. She looked really quite nice. <laughs> she looks very really um, elegant. And yeah. her press conference. Every, you know, I mean, the 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 journalists there are are obviously, uh, you know, have certain restrictions and problems, as we all know, and some of them are in prison. Uh, but there's always a new crop of them, and they are just as every bit as aggressive and creative and interesting <laughs> as journalists in any country that I've met. I think they, they surpass their American counterparts sometimes, and they're all over the place. Um, there are apps also, uh, you know, cell phone mm-hmm. apps like Telegram, which which Naderi told me about, played a huge role in the recent election. Uh, former uh, President Hatemi uh, recorded a message for Telegram that... Uh, could not be shown on uh, Iranian media but millions of people saw it and he said go out and vote for the list of hope and they went out and they voted for the list of hope uh, and uh, so I don't know what more I mean I think Iranians already have access to to pretty much every one of these apps that's available. the number
2: one predictor in Turkey over the last two years of a near doubling of Twitter's traffic I mean almost perfect correlation was the the moment that the government shut down Twitter <laughs> it's, a, it's almost a perfect color. You look at the charts on it. Every time they shut off Twitter, the Twitter traffic doubled in Turkey. So this is, is what it is.
0: Yeah. Um, the gentleman back there with the blue polo shirt, and then we'll do this guy. Yeah. Fariborz
9: uh, <laughs> Fatemi from the Oxfair Group. Um, I love your enthusiasm and the optimism that you present, but it seems to me that there's a great obstacle, and that's the Congress and there's a group of Iran-phobes who can't even pronounce the name Iran correctly, and they're adamantly opposed. Uh, you talk about entrepreneurs who you know, should be lobbying. I, I don't see any of that activity of uh, the American business community lobbying, talking to these people, trying to teach them what the country is about, and uh, the, the question the gentleman raised about uh, Israel. You have 30,000 Jews living in Iran, they have their own representative in, the con- in their parliament, and no one knows about this. It's the biggest group of Jews living outside of Israel in the Middle East, no one knows about this. And explain to them that the average Iranian has no uh, problem with Israel. And uh, I think the, f- the government is also in that sense. I mean, there are, of course there are people who you know, will use that as anybody uses other kinds of hatred in our country to, uh, Push their own agenda but it just seems to me the Congress—you've uh, you, done nothing about the Congress.
0: I'd yeah, well, like to hear about I, that. I think about groups, these like, groups like groups like and so on are very active on the Hill and uh, and did a huge amount to help get the nuclear deal through. Um, you know, first things first. Uh, no, I uh, understand
9: that, but yeah. after that, it just seems to me it got worse. Now they mm. want to put more stuff. Yeah,
0: science, well, right? you know, let, let's be fair here. Um, the Iranian government didn't have to have. Two, three missile tests right after concluding the nuclear deal. They didn't have to put another Iranian American in jail and his 80-year-old father, Siamak Namazi, and his father, Bakr. Uh, you know, there are unfortunately elements in Iran that want to poke a stick in the eye of those in the U.S. Congress who are opposed to a better relationship with Iran. So it's it's a two-way street and. Um, we, you know, all we can do as those who would like to see a better relationship is somehow you know, urge Iran also not to take uh, provocative steps that only make it harder for those who want to advocate for, for a better relationship.
2: A That's a much Let, There are three fundamental questions that are Congress. Right? Right. Will this, will a narrative, whatever that narrative be, will that narrative help me to get more votes or no? Will it help me to get more money or no? Might it jeopardize any of the money I have or no? And so at the end of the day, things like what NIAC does and folks in this room can do, by constantly pushing these narratives as part of an agenda, understanding that pragmatism I've just talked about I think is the, is the hope that we have overall. And remember, there are some really quite extraordinary, you know, it's fun to poke fun at Congress, but I've sat down and talked about some of these issues more broadly in the regions with people uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, Senator Kane is an unbelievable study on this stuff and fascinating to talk to. Senator Flake is an unbelievable study and understanding about this stuff. So there are pockets that you can leverage, yeah, but at the end of the day, those are the three questions that judge narrative on Capitol Hill, and it either one can rant against the gods or one can organize to make the, that narrative valuable within that context.
3: But I think that there is just so much that Nayak and Paya and some of the other groups, Iranian groups, can do. Really, the push has to come from the chambers of commerce, so chambers, yeah. from business the sure. This is really where the where I think that they need to know more about. These groups need to know more about Iran, about the opportunities, and push for it. Because it's not just from from uh, from our from the Iranian Americans. The push cannot come. It has to come from American Americans. <laughs> Gentlemen, right here.
0: Can you wait one second for the microphone? So
10: Iranian-Americans okay. are Americans. Uh, my name is Shahrir Hakimi. Uh, no relations to Shahrir Afshar. Um, uh, <laughs>
0: Great name. <laughs> well,
10: first of all, I want to thank you very much for this uh, uh, opportunity. Really, this, this gathering, although it's small, uh, an Atlantic continent yourself, uh, just to imagine that three years ago, such a gathering would have been almost impossible, mm-hmm. and that we have moved such a long way from three years ago To here, and just the prospect of three years from now is just—I think—it's going to be. uh, I—I'm. I'd like to be cautiously optimistic, and I think with uh, the goodwill that is present here, we can address all of the issues. One of the most difficult issues, as the gentleman mentioned, is the uh, issue of Israel. I do agree that if um, uh, if. uh, Uh, that issue could somehow be addressed, as difficult as it is, that it would be great hope. But I think that it's also not uh, the mountain that we all have been, uh, uh, have uh, come to believe that it is, because uh, uh, there are a lot of countries, U.S. allies in the region, Saudi Arabia and and other countries, that have, uh, that are U.S. allies and they still uh, are not technically a threat or existential threat to Israel. So I think that the path, that as, as the transition uh, moves forward. I'm afraid
0: Israel and Saudi Arabia are allies these days against yeah. Iran. But well, anyway. Uh,
10: so So I, I think that's just, we're just in a, in a transition mode and everything is, it is possible. Hopefully, there will be enough goodwill uh, in, but I think at, at the end of the day, it is not a really an Iranian-American issue any mm-hmm. longer, uh, although uh, I think Iranian-American uh, community as a whole has had to. Uh, has had more vested interest perhaps in this because we are all tired of our parents fighting each other all the time and us being, you know, uh, but, but at the end of the day, uh, it is really the, uh, the opportunity, the fact that Iran, because of its, its geostrategic position and can bring so much, so many solutions uh, if it's not circumvented necessarily, but that it is played. Maybe initially it has to play a synergy role to alleviate some of the U.S. concerns. In, uh, in the region, in the CIS, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and elsewhere, and then gradually move in. But I think it's really imperative that these conferences, these gatherings uh, are promoted, that are encouraged, so that other people, not just the Iranian community, uh, are involved, because I think the benefits will go o- also to Israel, it will go also to the Gulf, uh, Arab Gulf states, and the whole Persian re- uh, Gulf region will benefit from it. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for your comment. Uh, Glenn, right there.
8: Hi, I'm Glenn Schweitzer from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And I manage uh, exchange programs with Iran, been doing it for 15 years. uh, And so we're very sensitive to the the change in regulations. Uh, And I think uh, let me just make make a couple comments of what's happened recently. And by the way, I thought your presentation was excellent. I thought I knew Silicon Valley having family live out there, but you know better than, than I do for sure. Uh, the, uh, the OFAC regulations on travel uh, are tightening all the time, mm. and this is reflected in the State Department's travel advisories, and as those travel advisories get harsher and harsher, that spooks people from going to Iran, and right now it's, it's sort of hit a high pitch in that regard, and when the, when the uh, Iranians take, uh, take into prison several people, you know, that, that makes people even spookier. So uh, I don't know well, we uh, and I think the second related to that is the, is the OFAC's uh, complete commitment to persuading the Congress to go along with the nuclear deal, and so they want, don't want to be, appear as soft on, mm-hmm. on implementation of the OFAC regulations, and they go back and they're redefining what's meant by the word services, for example, which hits us very hard. Uh, but I have one question I'd like to pose to you. Over the weekend, the EU came out with a very bold, broad uh, program agreed to by the Iranians for exchanges of of people in a whole variety of areas. And they put money on the table to kick it off. And this dwarfs what we've been doing over many years. The same areas, but where we're talking about about 10 people a year, they're talking about 100 people a year. So should we join forces with the the Hmm. EU or should we let, Should we think about maybe we should uh, join, should the United States join up with them and not have separate approaches to how we address Ir- Iran or should we just be in competition with them? Mm-hmm. Is there a chance for somehow having a consensus of how we deal with Iran in these areas? Now I know in, in the, it's very difficult in the sanctions area, but perhaps there's a, there's a argument for being more consistent in the sanctions area. Not just in the trade, but where I am, in the university to universities, and techno parks to techno parks, and that sort of thing.
0: Thanks, Glenn, for that. Um, I mean, people to people exchanges are promoted by our State Department, certainly in some areas. We had a big meeting here earlier this year about sports diplomacy with Iran. And I know Glenn brings science, scientists and, and academics to this country and back and forth. So. Um, should we try to combine forces with Europeans, or is that impossible because of OFAC and our restrictions?
1: Again, not a, not a sanctions expert, and I don't pretend to know whether joining forces or competing would be the best approach, but I'm um, highly supportive of any type of further exchanges that could take place, and I would say that we have the formal apparatus for exchange. And, programs that the State Department is promoting and in many cases uh, implementing themselves and there's also the informal Mm -hmm. opportunities for exchange that I find around a, a lot of excitement around. When I was in Iran last year, hearing English with an American accent as opposed to a British accent was music to my ears because there have been tourists from Europe and all throughout Asia and Africa and almost every other region in the world going to Iran for many years, but it was a rare find uh, to interact with Americans who were there on uh, travel vacations and there as tourists, and that was really heartening. Um, I would also say that the universities, whether it's through a formal exchange program, I know that Stanford accepts more than 10 PhDs from Sharif University, which is the MIT, of Iran on an annual basis. And you can't discount the impact and power of people coming here. And now, for the first time, I'm seeing a lot returning back to Iran. So Iran, being the number one brain drain country of the world, is all of a sudden experiencing, albeit a small, brain regain. And Mm. I think that that's very hopeful. I also think that people-to-people exchanges played a critical role in the opening with Cuba. So you need to have things happening at the societal level as well as policy, and when they go well together, I think we see positive outcomes. So very supportive, and and congratulations on on the progress that you've had um, running these programs for so many years. I think we need to do more to promote and have people understand that such exchanges have been taking place for a long time.
0: One thing also, and that is that our State Department sorely needs more resources for things like processing visas, uh, which is a perennial problem. Um, we had a speaker we're trying to bring here from Iran who um, went to Dubai last week to, get to, to have his interview and uh, was not interviewed because they were too busy. Um, so Iranians have to leave their country twice to get a visa to come to the United States because we have no embassy there. We have no interests, American, uh, Americans processing visas there. Uh, these are all structural impediments to these kinds of uh, ties. Yeah, gentlemen gentleman there.
11: This is Iman Sohrabi of uh, Iran Educational Tourism. Thank you again for uh, the great panel and uh, I also visited Iran after years earlier a few months ago and I shared the same optimistic view, maybe even more optimistic <laughs> than you guys, but uh, <laughs> I had a couple of comments regarding tourism is because is it's the field that I'm involved in. Um, from what I hear from the tour operators actually, last year in 2015, um, I can't believe that number, but I was told that 7,000 Americans have visited Iran. Um, mm-hmm. We just, we were talking, we just had to actually not announce a tour for late May because when I was talking to my Iranian counterparts, all of the hotels are sold out. Then they are expecting about 15,000 Americans to visit in 2016. Wow. With that, I had a little tricky question. Obviously, there's no doubt that the force of the market and the entrepreneurial forces in Iran are towards, and actually, they really like to have deals with the United States. But realistically, with what's going on in the Congress and in our presidential um, race, None of the hopefuls uh, have spoken positively. Interestingly, the ones that are pro-market are the ones that <laughs> really want to put more sanctions on Iran, including given Hillary Clinton. Um, could it be possible we know the, the, the massive forces of uh, the market? Could this actually now uh, push Iranians and the Iranian entrepreneurs away from the United States? Because from what I hear a lot of frustrations from them, that, hey, we did the deal. But we, you know, we can't, we actually can't do all these things in the United States that we want, but they do want the technology, they do want all of these things fast. Could this further push the Iranian entrepreneurs away from the United States and maybe in the hands of China and BRICS? Thank
0: you. Or are there some things they can only get from us?
3: (laughs) Well, I think that there's certainly a lot of things that they can only get from America, but I think that... uh, China and and Far east have been in in, in Iran for many many uh, years even during the sanctions they were very much more uh, in, uh, involved I, I would say the answer to to your question about uh, are they going to turn away from america uh, yes or no uh, um, at this uh, because uh, yes because they after years of sanction and being starved they now need to have technology they now need to have the you know uh, upgrade their um, production lines and so on i mean i'm not just talking about the it but let's say also about manufacturing and of course they will turn to um, to uh, to europe uh, in the end i think the american market is the, the market to be in and, and i think that they will be definitely both wanting to export to 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 the united states and there are a whole set of export uh, products not just carpets and uh, pistachios i'm talking about wider petro- petrochemicals for instance they would want to to uh, to export to america but then also Uh, hopefully by then they will be a uh, the Americans can go the real innovation innovation comes really from America I mean uh, I have worked in many many economies in the world and uh, until the Americans come in uh, I mean the Europeans are always there but until the Americans come in you get into a different level of uh, of uh, production I don't think I would
2: disagree with that I look I would just say the 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 future is not, the past is not also prologue. And if you assume a certain hubris or arrogance, it can work both ways. So, you know, the rest of the world is rising. It's like where I started this talk. The rest of the world is rising at unbelievable ski- speed and access to technology, which means rising middle classes everywhere. And I think the wake-up call we as Americans should pay attention to is Alibaba. Because here is one of the largest IPO ever in the history of the world, one of the largest tech-enabled, not necessarily massively innovative, but tech-enabled enterprise that was built in its size and scale fundamentally without the West at all. Zero. I mean, a little bit of revenue, but almost none. And so I think that there is unbelievable opportunity and cultural connection in this. Uh, The the diaspora population here makes dynamics unbelievably important. Um, and, And there are things which I believe are profoundly unique and powerful among us now. And I think they could grow more going forward. But I don't think that we should assume it. I think it's just something over the next 10 years we should realize. It is becoming a very big world with a lot of opportunities. And to think that we can just go through life telling people to go screw, do it on our terms, you know, you're with us or against us stuff. That in the 21st century, that's over. And either we'll either we'll realize it and engage accordingly, or we won't, and then we'll see how it plays out over time.
0: <laughs> time for one more, and right back there.
4: Uh, Sam Cutler, Horizon Client Access. Uh, one of the persistent criticisms you hear coming from Treasury is that U.S. companies are not taking advantage
2: of the authorizations that do exist. Hmm. Uh, General License D1 actually authorizes a fairly broad range of, of exports of, of hardware and software, personal communications related. But things like laptops, cell phones, uh, it, it
4: it's fairly broad. Uh, do, is the private sector, and, and this is maybe more for larger companies that, that are producing in large quantities, but are they
2: t- doing enough to, to take advantage of these existing authorizations?
1: It's a very good question. Kelly? I can only speak anecdotally um, regarding the, both the companies as well as the nonprofits who should be benefiting from the humanitarian exemptions. And there are literally household name banks that we all interact with where if you arrive on site and speak with a banking specialist, they will not process the transaction even if you bring a document from Treasury because they say we have our fellow bank that was fined to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. It is not worth it for us to process this transaction that's worth $10,000 or $100,000. So there may be the multi-billion dollar transactions that are still going through because of those specific carve-outs. But I know personally there are many banks that will not process the transactions even if you show the letter of the law to them. It's just yeah. not worth it. They say for you to find another bank. Yeah.
0: I think Boeing will have no problems selling planes. That's right. And mm-hmm. having a bank handle that transaction. That's right. Yeah. But, but that's a very is good point. That's exactly
3: the point that. Uh, this, these grey areas are just too many greys. You said 50 shades of grey. There are different kinds of 50 shades of grey in, in, the, in the legal, in the American legal system, and they are going to be very difficult to overcome. And as long as the banks won't, uh, you know, won't uh, step forward, in fact, one of the comments that had been made by uh, by somebody, an, an Iranian uh, official, was that when the sanctions were being implemented, or the uh, the nuclear sanctions. The American Treasury went bank to bank to bank to bank and uh, meet, met with everybody face to face to really, uh, you know, uh, read them the riot The uh, But now, what what the American Treasury has done is that just sent a circular. Says, well, why don't they go the same way and 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 go bank to bank yeah. to bank and face to face and and really make the case that sanctions, uh, you know, where the sanctions have been lifted so that the banks are given much more of an assurance uh, to to be able to step forward, even in the areas where they can or where the the, uh, space is available. Let me say one thing in support of, of, uh, not in support of the sanctions
0: so much, but uh, clearly Iranian officials are trying to clean up their banking sector. Uh, The head of the central bank, when he was here, talked about uh, legislation against terrorism financing, I don't know how they define that in Iran since they're still giving support to Hezbollah, but uh, uh, also money laundering and so on, uh, trying to make sure that, that banks are all properly registered, that things are more transparent than they have been in, in the past. And and here they have a legacy not just of, of sanctions but of the awful uh, administration of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, uh, which created a lot of chaos in, in the financial sector in Iran. But I think that that the pressure on Iran to to upgrade and to become more transparent and uh, deal with corruption and so on is all to, all to the good. But I just hope that if and when they make this progress that, that we are able to recognize it uh, and, and and take advantage of it. Um, I want to thank my speakers. You were all wonderful. Um, I want to thank all of you for coming. And uh, uh, I think this is a topic that we should certainly continue to follow. and realize that Iran is not a one dimensional country it's not just a nuclear program but it's a great deal more so thank you for coming thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.